Good morning, church. My name's Nate Gast. Some of you know me. Um, I was neighbors. I've, I've preached here, I don't know, six, seven times. I was neighbors with uh, Gary and Grant. I helped raise Grant. It, it took a village, right? He was your, he was your second born and uh, takes a little bit of, a little more, more work with the second born. Uh, it is good to be here. And uh, I want to give you a heads up that uh, today is not going to be a profound sermon. Uh, in fact, it may be the simplest message that you have ever heard preached from this pulpit. Um, and it's not because the content is simple, it's because the instructions are uh, difficult. The actions prescribed are very foreign to us, they don't come natural. The older I get, uh, I begin to see that one of the gaps sometimes in some of our evangelical churches is that we love the mysterious, we love theology so much, um, and the, the practicality kind of gets pushed off to the side uh, because we almost think that, they're, that it's a little bit too simple for us. We're a little more Gnostic than we'd like to admit, right? We just give us some secret knowledge, I'll ponder that, but when it comes to playing itself out in my life, that's where the difficulty comes, and we'll kind of separate these things in our lives. We have a lot of people in the church, and uh, sometimes I'm guilty of this as well, where I'd much rather sit in a library and study or load another podcast in my car uh, than I would uh, deal with people, right? I can pass the theology exam, but when it comes to working with my wife and my children in stressful situations, that's just too much at times. Put me back in the library. Give me books. They're controllable. I can put bookmarks in. I can call time out, set it off the side. I don't get to do that with people. I don't get to do that in my daily life. And so we have a lot of theologians, uh, myself included at times, uh, where we struggle to put these things into practice. And uh, so we become joyless, we become loveless, uh, and we make little progress in holiness. It's kind of like trying to lose weight, and you pick up the medical textbook, and you can tell me all about metabolic rate, you can tell me about calorie count, uh, but no habits change. We're not going to change my diet, and I'm not really going to exercise anymore, uh, but I know all about it. And, um, and so that, that we expect that to somehow get us um, closer to our goals, and it just doesn't. Um, in the West, we tend to think that Christian maturity is tied to how much you know, not tied to your holiness. But I think biblically, uh, we would say that Christian maturity is how much like Jesus do you look. Now, knowledge is part of it, so I don't want to discount that. Uh, my grandma, uh, she's walked with the Lord for 70 years. She has, she's not a voracious reader. Every morning, read the Bible, pray. At lunch, read the Bible, pray. At dinner, read the Bible, pray. She can walk theological circles around me in terms of practice and godliness and holiness. I would win a theological debate, but I can't get what she has without walking with the Lord for 70 years. She knows Jesus in an intimate way that I just have to live with Jesus longer in order to do that. And my, my grandma is one of the godliest women that I know. When I went to seminary, uh, my grandpa begged me not to go. He, he said, he called it cemetery. Don't go to cemetery. Don't go. And, and I said, why not, Gramps? And he said, because too many men come back loving their books more than they love their flock. And, uh, and, and I have seen that play out. Um, and, uh, and I think you've seen that, right? Uh, that there sometimes can be this disconnect. And we grow up... Uh, longing for knowledge. I mean, you see that it's in counseling. I'll have people like, okay, what's the next magic Bible verse? And I'm, I'm like, well, there is no Bible verse. Just stop doing it. I know, but what's the Bible say? Well, the Bible says stop doing it. So stop doing it. Uh, well, I need, an, I need a psalm that addresses it. Yeah, the psalm says stop doing it. I don't know. And that, that becomes so difficult because now I have a certain amount of responsibility. And so 
uh, I, again, hear me say this. Knowledge is important, and we should pursue the knowledge of Christ, but it cannot stop there. Knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God. And to truly encounter the living God, it will leave you changed. It has to. Read through the scriptures. Everybody who comes into contact with God falls face down. They come into contact with Christ. Their life is forever different. Kings bow down because they see their frailty. Adulterous women find true love and sprint back to town to tell people about it. Cripples take up their mats and they run again. Fishermen lay down their nets and their lives are forever upended. The rich young ruler, he encounters Christ. He leaves sad because he doesn't want to lay down his stuff. But nobody draws near to Christ and returns the same. He is both the irresistible force and the immovable object. He is the rock on which our tiny little kingdoms that we build up are shattered. Now, the last year of my life has probably been the hardest that I've ever faced, aside from the obvious cultural angst and trying to do ministry with everybody being angry all the time. I buried two grandpas. I sent a kid off to college for the first time. I adjusted to numerous ministry changes. And frankly, I felt like I was meandering in a spiritual wilderness almost all year. And um, I'd never really experienced this before over an extended period of time. And I remember sitting and saying, Lord, what are you doing? Like, what is your will for me in all of this? It's just dry. Where are you? And last winter, I was doing my devotions. And honestly, as some of you have probably been here, I was just going through the motions. It had been months of praying with prayers that bounce off the ceiling, that just kind of go nowhere, opening the word. And it's like, yeah, I know this stuff. What do you want me to get out of it? And I felt like the Lord was just really distant at this time. And then I came across this text that we're going to walk through this morning. And it smacked me in the face. What is your will for me in this? It's real simple. Be joyful, pray always, give thanks in all circumstances and no matter what. And so that's our text today. And I'm just going to read it for you again. You could probably have it memorized before the end of this sermon. If I get real bored, just start, uh, just start memorizing this. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now it's a simple message. So Grant probably could come up and close us and you guys know what to do from here. Uh, But no pastor ever, I got like 30 minutes left, so we're going to take advantage of it. But do you ever read the Bible and get frustrated at yourself because you say, why can't I do this? Like This is super simple. Why can't I follow these instructions? Because they don't seem all that difficult. But obedience in, in in the spirit of being regenerated and moving forward in the Holy Spirit can be a very difficult task at times. A book study on joy doesn't necessarily bring about joy, right? A word study on prayer doesn't necessarily lead to a prayer for a fruitful prayer life. And studying Thanksgiving doesn't lead to a posture of gratitude because all of these are supernatural works of the Holy Spirit in our lives. They're not the result of information. It's the result of transformation that has taken place via the Holy Spirit. And so let's walk through these commands real simple. The first is this rejoice always. In other words, be joyful. A quick reading of the text of all of scripture would tell you that joy should be one of, if not the primary marker of the believer. Joy is one of the things I think that sets us apart from the world. A church should be full of joy. It's one of the reasons I like walking in to this place in the morning. You guys are greeting each other with hugs. You're laughing. You're following up with the men's retreat on stories, and there's laughter. A church should be a place with just joyous laughter, even in the midst of tears. 
And you guys have had those moments in your life, I think, where you're crying in serious grief and you're laughing at the same time. And you're, 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 you're telling jokes in the midst of tragedy. And it is not a flippant joy. It is a joy that is rooted in something significantly deeper than just a feeling because it's not a manufactured feeling. Joy is not a personality trait. Christian joy, and this is a good definition. It's not mine. I don't know where I got it. It says, it is the emotion springing from the deep confidence that God is always good and always in control. That's what Christian joy is. It's not an emotion on top of an emotion. It's not a feeling on top of a feeling. It is a feeling on top of a fact. It's not hyper-happiness. That's not joy. But it is an emotional response to what I know to be true about my God. And that is why knowledge and biblical study are important because they're the foundation. God's revealed word sets the stage for our joy. But being united with Christ, that's the substance of it. All of us should be in the habit of constantly expressing joyful wonder when we contemplate all that we have in Christ and all that he has done for us. And it's got to move from head to heart so that it can be expressed. Because we're not just thinking beings. We are effective beings too. We are moved by things. We are called to and commanded to feel as well as to think. We are hearts and minds. The past two years, our culture has been characterized by fear and uncertainty. And as a result, people are angry, they're bitter, they're divided. And it's been a fantastic opportunity for the church to respond differently. How can you people keep singing? Right? That's what the culture should look at and say, you guys gather. Why are you not equally divided? Why are you not bitter with one another? Don't you know that person looks different than you? You should have all kinds of issues. And we say, no, no, no. Let me tell you what Christ has done. And we laugh in the midst of this. The culture should look at us and say, do you know something? You ever been in a stressful situation and there's somebody who's just calm and kind of smiling in the corner and you're like, wait a minute. Like, you know something. Like, what are you not telling me? Don't you know that Russia has nuclear bombs? Don't you know that monkeypox is coming, uh, you know, from New York or wherever it is? Don't you know that inflation is eating up all of your savings? You should be freaking out. It's, ah, no, we know something. Our king is in control, and I'm a child of the king. He's in control of the entire universe. He's doing something amazing. I don't, I don't know exactly how he's doing it, but I know where it ends. And it ends at the foot of the throne, the new heavens and the new earth, and everything will be made right. This is just a step towards getting there. We know that. And so we can continue to do what God has called us to do regardless of the circumstances. So how do we smile in the face of all of this? How do we find joy? Let me give you just a couple of things. Again, super practical message. The first is this, think more on the character of God. The Psalms are loaded with these verses, but one in verse 28, verse seven, the Lord is my strength, the Lord is my shield, in him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts with my song, I give thanks to him. Where's your joy coming from? If it's coming from your circumstances, tomorrow it's gonna change. But the joy is coming from God. He is a rock. He does not change. He is our strength. He is our shield. That's why we trust in him. My joy begins in the character and nature of God, not my circumstances. In, verse, in Psalm 89, verse 16, in your name, they rejoice all the day. I love that. What are they rejoicing in? It doesn't say in my wealth, in the stock market, you know, rises. That's what I rejoice in. In your name. What does it mean when the scriptures speak of your name? It means all that you express yourself to be. 
all that you have claimed to be, your character, your nature, your being, all that you are, God, that is what I rejoice in. And since that doesn't change, our posture and our, and our spirit of joy should not change either. I'm going to put up a lengthy passage here, but here's the second thing. Ponder the character of God and think more on what you actually have in Christ. This is one of my favorite passages. You want to inculcate in your life a sense of joy? This is a great passage to memorize because every line, Peter is just pounding down. Here's all you have in Christ. And this is to a group of people under severe persecution. And he doesn't, he doesn't give them a motivational speech. Hang in there. What he says is, man, let me tell you what you have in Christ. So I'm, I'm assuming it's on the screen. It's 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Just, I know it's familiar, but just look at all that's here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy, right? That's redundant. I love it when Paul gets redundant. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So it shouldn't matter what's going on in our life. Look at this all that's there. You have received mercy. You didn't deserve it. You are born again. You have a new nature. You have hope in a hopeless world. You have an inheritance when you had nothing. You are protected by God in every trial. And even they are being used by God for God's glory and for your salvation. Right? There's nothing that comes into your life that is not moving towards that goal of your own sanctification and the glory of God. So, we, so we're joyful. So I don't see it. Be joyful. I don't understand it. Be joyful. I'm confused. Be joyful. Fall back on what you know to be true, not how you feel in the moment. If you are in Christ, you have an eternal salvation. The wonderful work of Christ has been granted to you through the sovereign work of God. How can you not rejoice? Shame on me when that doesn't move my heart. Shame on me when that becomes boring in my life. And I gotta be honest, there are times it does. I forget the wonder of what God has done in my life. Have you pondered it? You have been delivered from death row. You are now adopted. Imagine the scene. You go down, you know, the penitentiary, wherever they do executions, and, and, and you're there. And you have no plea. You know you're guilty. You're in the chains. You've got the prison garb on. You're just waiting for the sentence. And somebody walks in and says, I, I got it. You mean you got it? No, I, I took it. You're free to go. And not only that, there's a limousine waiting out there for you because, um, you know, Musk has adopted you into his family now right? You get, you get a Tesla and all the inheritance, and you're going, well, it doesn't match. I'm in change. Yeah, they'll be unlocked. I just get to go free? Yeah, what happens here? Somebody else is taking it. And you walk out, and you go, this is great. But that's how so many Christians live their life. I mean, how many Christians just walk around with slumped shoulders like, oh, I got to follow some rules now to follow Christ. And no, no, no. You've now been free to follow house rules. You've been set free to walk in the spirit of Christ, to love people in ways you couldn't do it. And you'd be skipping down the street. 
What happened? That guy adopted me. Like, I get all of that stuff, and I'm not going to die. Like, there is a simplicity to our salvation that we complicate, and I think it causes us to think rather than to respond in joy. So the last thing I want you to do to to inculcate joy in your life is this. Dwell on future promises. So my grandpa passed away, very close to my grandpa. had as much influence on my life as anybody. And I was with him the day that he died. And uh, it's in hospice in his living room. Struggled to speak. Um, We argued a lot of theology over the years. We agreed on 99%. So, of course, we focused on the 1% just for fun. And he couldn't hear. And so my girls were always like, Dad, why are you always yelling at Grandpa? Uh, (laughs) But my grandpa had joy in hospice. My grandpa was a a joyful man. But I remember there was just a light in his eyes when when he knew what was coming. And I remember I, gra- I grabbed his hands and I prayed for him. We read numerous psalms. His mind was kind of gone. But man, the minute I started reading psalms, his, vo- his lips started reciting him just word by word. It's amazing how that works. I leaned down and I, I kissed his forehead. And I said, Gramps, I said, are you okay? And, and, and the last words that he said to me were, he said, I'm good. I have a good God who makes good promises and he keeps every one of them. Those are, that's the last thing he said to me. Um, and it, he didn't die right then, but I just, I know he was just focused on those promises, and that's what brought him joy. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He doesn't say we're sorrowful, then we rejoice, work through the grief, and then find joy. That's not what Paul says. We're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can cry and laugh at the same time. We can cry and smile at the same time. These are, for the believer, these are simultaneous things. They're not sequential things. And how do we do that? Because we know that God is not done with the situation. It ends at the foot of the throne. That's where our trials end. And so my my encouragement is that we will focus on our status more than our sentiment. You are part of an everlasting kingdom. You have good promises and you have a God who keeps them all. Now, it's not a complete list, but the challenge is joy should be a defining mark of our walk. Our homes should be places of joy. Our churches should be places of joy. Our hearts should exude joy. The older I get, the less patience I have for Eeyore Christians. And I, I know that there's some, it's just a personality, but, but just the people that just mope all the time. And I don't deal with moodiness real well, which is ironic because I live with five women. Uh, <laughs> stereotype, sorry. Um, boys are just as moody, they just pout. Uh, girls let you know where you stand with them. Uh, but I, I, I went on a, so I realized I wasn't real good with moody people when my senior year of high school, I had a, a date with a girl. I hope she's not here. That's the danger when you like grew up in the area. Um, and I, first date went great. Cute little blonde, fun, good personality. Uh, I picked her up the second date and she kind of, she got in the car and, and was just grumpy. And I was like, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. And I distinctly had this conversation in my head, like, this isn't going anywhere. Like, if you can't get excited for the second date, like, this is not going to bode well. So I just turned right around. I took her right home. I pulled right up. I said, hey, I'm sorry. This, this relationship is not going to work out. And she looked at me, and I was like, if I lead you on, you're mad at me. If I drop you off now, you're mad at me. But this way, I can save 30 bucks and catch up with the guys. So um, I'm going to do that. But the the point being is that there's a certain demeanor that demonstrates the the posture of your heart towards something, is there not? That brings us to our second point. We are not only to be joyful, we are also to be prayerful. And this sounds simple enough, but this is something that is sadly missing from so many of our homes, our individual lives, and our churches. 
And I am not immune from this. There are times where I felt my prayer life just limping along, um, you know, for years at a time, struggling to find regular, concentrated time for, for, for meaningful prayer. And yet I think if you're looking for a gauge of your spiritual health, I think this is it. I think this is a mark of any healthy relationship. I've spent the last 12 years working with college kids, so I do a ton of weddings. I think I've done like 64 of them now. And uh, I love the pre-marriage counseling. I don't give them a book. You know why? Because they don't read it. Or they treat it just like they did when you, they were in, they wait 15 minutes beforehand, try to get one talking point and show up. But I give them assignments. I hand them note cards and little things like write down three things that you love about your in-laws and three things that are going to drive you nuts about your in-laws. Some of you have probably been on that list. And you trade note cards and they talk about it. Not in front of me. I say, go get a cup of coffee and then just walk through how you guys did this. And why do I do that? Because I'm trying to teach them how to communicate even about hard and difficult things because it is the litmus test of a relationship. When marriage couples would come into my office, I could tell how healthy it was based on how much they communicated, how much they talked. It's usually the first sign something's wrong when, when couples stop talking. But what if a young man came in our counseling and said, Nate, look, I don't really need to do this. I appreciate this note card stuff, but I feel like I already know her. I've looked at all of her yearbooks. I've watched all of her home videos. I have, I've known her for a few years. Uh, give me a test on her. I'll pass it. Firstly, he would be treating her like a subject to be studied rather than a person to be loved. And secondly, he will spend a lifetime learning. He doesn't know nearly as much about her as he thought he did. Now, my grandparents were married 70 years when my grandpa passed away. And I remember pulling up to their house when I'd go to visit. You know, it was a big deal when the grandkids were coming. So they'd sit on the porch and like you get a welcome party. But I remember I'd, I'd sit and watch and they would sit and they're still talking. And I distinctly remember thinking like, you've had 70 years to say stuff. What do you still have? Like there can't be anything left. And grandpa and I were sitting at lunch and grandpa made some reference to Susie Q or some girl in high school that he had kissed behind the barn. And... <laughs> Grandma was like, you kissed Susie? And I'm like, Grandpa, you made it 70 years. Like, <laughs> you made it 70 years, and Grandma's still learning stuff. And I just, I remember thinking, wow, you guys are still learning about each other. Uh, now, maybe part of it's getting old, and you just forget the conversation you had yesterday, so you just redo it. But there's something about that communication that they still loved talking to each other. They still loved communicating together. And it wasn't my, that my grandpa just knew about my grandma. My grandpa knew my grandma. He knew what every look meant when she gave it. He knew what she smelled like when she got ready for church in the morning. He knew what she liked and, dis, and disliked. He knew what her hand felt like, her little wrinkled hand at 90 when he would grab it every night to pray by name for every one of his grandkids and great-grandkids. He knew the channel that the tears would take down her wrinkled cheeks when she would weep. He knew her. He just didn't know about her. And I think prayer is that reminder that we are knowing God. We're not just knowing about him, but we are entering into this relationship as we pour out ourselves. And I think the vitality of a Christian life is predicated on prayer. I believe it dictates the vibrancy of your walk more than anything else. I think it is a, I think it is a mark of a healthy church when you gather together for prayer and you say, we will make time for this because it's the engine that moves everything forward that we do. But do we understand that it's not just an obligation, it is a privilege. You have been given a pass into the throne room of heaven. As a child, you don't need to wait in line. You don't need to make an appointment. You don't need to get dressed up. You don't need to touch the scepter. 
You've already knelt before Christ and you have been adopted. And so he says, come in, make your request known. As the persistent widow who's just like, Lord, 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 do we do that? Because your little kids do. Dad, can I have ice cream? I don't know. Can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream? Fine, here's some ice cream. And I don't think the Lord is a begrudging giver. That's not my point. But the point is, is that there is this, this intimacy that we have. What you wouldn't give to sit down and talk with certain high-achieving people. I remember in January, I was at a retreat, and, um, and John Piper, who's one of my, he's impacted my theology significantly. And I'm in an elevator with a bunch of kids, and he comes in, and he stands right next to me. And I'm like, I got to say something. I froze. I, and I'm not even like in the celebrity culture like this. He's like this tall. I'm like, I, I should say something. I, what was I supposed to say? We named our dog after him. Am I supposed to say like, I named my dog after you? I was like, I, I didn't know. So all these things, just dumb, dumb things keep coming in. I was like, I, I think I said something like we were all crammed in an elevator. I'm like, this seems like a good idea in a pandemic. I have nothing. This is so stupid. Um, but how much more so when I'm like, I'd love to have a cup of coffee with this guy and just say, Teach me something. You've done ministry for 50 years. Tell me what I need to know. How much more so, the king of the universe, do I get to pour out my heart before him? We know this, but why are we not better at it? I'm gonna give you just a couple things. One is, I think we're just not disciplined to focus anymore. Our world is governed by bells and dings, right? I mean, how often do you reach in your pocket thinking you got a text and nobody texted you? And then you're sad because you're like, oh, I don't have any friends. But we're just constantly moving about. And my brain has changed. I used to be able to memorize scripture like this. And now my focus, even the amount of time I can spend reading over an extended period of time has shrunk. Number two, we don't see our need for it. We are taught to do more for Christ than to be more for Christ, to sit. I spent a lot of time reading about the persecuted church. And one of the constant themes that comes up, there are people of prayer. They know their need. It's before them. They, they, they will literally say, Lord, provide food for us today. I have never had to mean the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. I've prayed it, uh, just kind of out of habit, but I've never had to say, Lord, I don't know how you're gonna provide in this one. I don't know where this food is coming from. But man, there's a certain grace with, being, with not having anything, isn't there? Where it was like, I'm taking it all away and you are gonna have me and you're gonna have nothing else. But in having me, you're gonna have the best of absolutely everything. I think another great barrier to prayer is we're just busy. We can't find time. We always have something going on. But as I've already pointed out, communication is the key to a healthy relationship. It's kind of funny at pastor's retreats when I would go on at nine o'clock at night, all the pastors would disappear. And you're like, and they're all up on a hill trying to get reception to call home just to check on their wives. Why? They've only been gone 12 hours. But you begin to see those are healthy marriages, right? They're just saying, hey, honey, how's your day? How'd things go today? Is there anything I need to know? It's a five-minute conversation, that constant reaching out. But how long will we go in our lives before we talk to God? Right? You wouldn't go weeks without talking to your spouse, I hope. How much more so Christ? So here's, a, here's one practical thing that I would encourage you to do. Turn off the radio in your car this week. Just don't turn it on. Don't listen to a podcast. Drive to work and pray. And you'll zone out after 60 seconds, most of you. And you'll forget. Build habits. Just make something intentional that you're going to do. So whether we like it or not, prayer is the assumed activity for the Christian. Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, pray like this. He says, when you pray. It's vital to what we do. But not only that we pray, but look at what Scripture prays for. And this is another challenge for us. Let's pray big. Let's pray big. 
I mean, you look at what the Lord has done in history, and you look at the requests that have been made, but God is in the business of answering prayers. Thy kingdom come, Lord. Bring your kingdom to consummation. Come back, Lord. Let Franklin be the next big revival. Transform the entire town. You know, we read through Jonah, and we think the miracle is that a man survived three days in the belly of a fish. That's pretty cool. But you know what the miracle in the book of Jonah is? That an entire city repents. 40,000 people, maybe more than that, repent. And you know what the message was? Uh, repent or God's going to destroy you. A reluctant prophet shows up almost passive aggressively just saying, repent or God's going to destroy you. Whoom, spirit comes in and the entire town is regenerated. That's an amazing, why, can't, why do we not think that still happens? But we kind of pray like, I'm supposed to pray this, Lord, but I don't really believe it. Pray big things. Pray that the Lord revives his church in America. Don't give up on it. It's easy to see the headlines and just throw up your hands and just say, we're just gonna have this little remnant here in Franklin. Are you kidding? The gates of hell don't prevail. You're not inside the gates. Hell is inside the gates and we press in on it. Go forward with your conquering king. He's conquered the last enemy. There are no more left to be conquered. Death is done. The enemies have been subdued and every knee will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. Go forward in that confidence. <clears throat> Last winter, I was at a, at a missions conference and I loved hearing about all that God is doing. Bibles being translated, the gospel going forth, but all of it was predicated on prayer. These missionaries understood we're not even gonna begin work until we have sat down and really prayed over this work. And I, don't, I used to think missionaries just said, if you can't financially support us, we just covet your prayers. I used to think that was just something they said. I don't think that's true. I think they really say, no, no, pray. Like we need finances, but God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can sell a few anytime he wants. I need the prayer. Like pray for us. And that is that constant uh, effort. And I think if, the, if America became a, or if we became a praying church again, I think our children uh, would stay the course. I think our marriages would be transformed, and I think entire communities uh, would begin to see the glory of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Finally, the last one. Give thanks in all circumstances. And for me, this is the hardest one. I'm really good at giving thanks in some circumstances, mostly when things are going the way that I want them to go. But gratitude is something that God holds very, very highly. And don't miss this. When the people are coming out of Egypt, all right, so they've been delivered. They're in the middle of the wilderness. What is the sin that God says, I'm done with you guys? Like you are stiff-necked people. It is a sin, is a sin of, of ingratitude. They're complaining. How in the world are they? If you read the story, you're like, what are you? What do you have to complain about? You were a slave. You did nothing but put some blood on a doorpost. God fought your enemies, got you to the Red Sea. You didn't know where to go. He parted the Red Sea. You walked across. Boom, the enemies are destroyed. You get into the wilderness and you're like, how are we going to eat? And God says, I'll just drop it on the ground for you. Just open up your tent, throw some in. You got breakfast. And then people are like, uh, this isn't the way I thought it was going to go. I mean, but you've seen this spirit in your kids, right? And you realize you're a child in God's kingdom too. You act just like your, ch your children do. What do they have to complain about? Are we there yet? My feet hurt. They're complaining all the time. This man, it's the same thing we had last week. I don't like this. I don't want peanut butter and jelly. Can you take the crust off the edges? All these same things that we do. It wasn't enough for them and they began 
to complain. And it didn't take him very long, did it? We want to go back. Man, we are the same way. We have short memories. We forget all that God has done in our lives and the prayers that he has answered. And that's why I think this is the hardest of the three this morning. We live in Disney World. We live in Disney World. In the, in the grand scheme of history, this is the wealthiest place that has ever existed, ever. You have everything at your fingertips, and we are a people that are unthankful. We're like children in wealthy homes that don't even look forward to Christmas because we are, what are you going to get me? I already have everything. Let me ask you this. If you get nothing else out of this message, pay attention to this line. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning with only the things you thanked God for today, what would you have? If you were to wake up tomorrow morning with only the things that you thanked God for today, what would you actually have waiting for you? But there's another aspect to this when Paul's talking about gratitude, because he's not talking about stuff, is he? He's talking about situations, and that's a different ballgame altogether. Because it's one thing to thank God for my food. It's another thing to thank him for a boring day, children. It's one thing to thank God for a home. It's another thing to thank him for trials. But notice that the text does not say, be thankful for all circumstances. What's it say? Be thankful in all circumstances. That means in the midst of the storm, we're thankful. That's an amazing statement. At the age of 45, I've had to go through some stuff in my life, and I'm at the point now where I can begin to reflect on the fruit of hardship. I can see the purpose and, and fruit in my mom's suicide, and I can clearly thank God after circumstances, but only now at 45 and having walked with the Lord for you know 40, some, 40 years can I thank God in circumstances, and I'm not good at it yet. I'm getting better at beginning to fall back on who God is and his promises. But how can Paul say, thank God in all circumstances? Does he not know how hard my life has been? Does he not know how hard things have gone for me lately? How does he do it? Well, he keeps God central. He knows that God is good and God desires good for his children. My children don't thank me for spankings. They don't thank me when I'm giving them a lecture. In fact, Maddie, when she was about, I don't know, she was probably 16, you know, in their past certain discipline age, like, I don't know what to do with a 16-year-old girl. And finally, she raised her hand. She said, Dad. I said, yeah, what do you want, Maddie? She said, Dad, can you just spank me? I know it would be weird, but I'm 16, but your lectures just take forever. <laughs> I realize now I've got you. The long lecture is now going to be the, uh, the, 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 the punishment. But it, how can Paul, can Paul say this? Paul's been beaten, shipwrecked, maligned, the, the kicker of the whole thing is he had to deal with a snake bite. That's enough to do me in right there. But Paul knows what the goals are. He stays focused, and they are personal sanctification, the kingdom of God, and the glory of his name. And so if trials bring that about, so be it. Bring it on, right? He is a one-trick pony. That's what Paul is. He's just one thing. You ask him a question, why are you smiling? Uh, let me tell you about the gospel. Why are you enduring? Let me tell you about the gospel. You're hopping on another boat. You've been shipwrecked like nine times. Yeah, but let me tell you about the gospel. Gospel's got to get there. I'm going. I'm building the kingdom. I'm, I'm part of what God is doing for his name's sake. It's not natural, but it's something that Paul had to learn. Philippians 4, you guys know the last verse, but let me put it in context. I have learned whatever situation I am to be content. You had to learn to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
He's not talking about hitting a fastball or dunking a basketball, right? He's talking about dealing with need, dealing with want. But more than that, even more than just situations, what does the Bible tell us? Be thankful for your trials. James 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and you will face them. Why? They lead to maturity and completeness. Most of us want to be mature, right? I mean, don't you have this idea of being a 70-year-old godly grandpa? Ah, just you just think you're going to wake up one day and that's what happens? Like you wake up with a grandkid, you've got gray hair, and you're suddenly this venerable old man. No, no, no. You do that work now. And part of the way that comes to be is God puts you in trials and puts you in positions where you have to lean upon him. So we want maturity, but we don't want the work that leads to it. We don't want the trials that can speak into our grandkids' situations, right? We just want the book. Like, let me just theoretically know about it. But I don't actually want to go through it. But nothing is more awkward than people acting immature, right? How often do you say to your kids, hey, stop, right? Your 14-year-old lays on the ground and throws a little temper tantrum. It's like, act your age, But how many times do we have believers who have walked with the Lord 40 years who still act like they're 15 years old? They want to grow up. But nothing is more awkward than a grown man acting like a child. But we have an evangelical culture that is perfectly content with this, and here's why. We have what I call cheesy Christianity. We don't want to feast on the depth. We don't want to actually do hard things. Just give me the cheeses, give me the Doritos, and I'll just kind of go about my day. And we wonder why we're not sustained to grow. Right? We've got to pray hard things, we need to do hard things, and we need to learn to be content and thankful in our situation. This process of being mature, and I'm wrapping up here, but this process of growing into maturity, at least in my own life, it's not a simple little remodel job. My daughters love HGTV. Right? Sometimes you buy a house and they get in and they're like, man, we got to tear the whole thing down. That's what Christ does for us. It is not a, let's just put some pain over the wall. He's wiping the whole thing out and he is building a new creation. It's not fixing what was there. You're being given a new heart, creating me a new heart, oh God. And sometimes it's like the Lord's just breaking out a sledgehammer in my life. And can I give thanks in the midst of those difficulties? This is why Paul says give thanks because God is always working. His purpose is bigger than you. It was bigger than anything the Israelites could understand. You see, joy is natural when we understand what God is doing. Prayer is a privilege because we get to take part in it. And thanksgiving overflows because God is building his name and his fame and we get to participate in it. Friends, when we truly know Christ and treasure him supremely, all of this will happen naturally and continually. And notice those words at the end of that. Pray always. Rejoice continually and give thanks in all circumstances. They are absolute words of this is the mark of what we do. It is not seasonal. It is continual. It is the permanent state of the redeemed. Let me close with this example. I was reading a story of an unnamed missionary, and he couldn't give his name because he's in a closed country. He'd been there 25 years. He had lost a wife to a disease. Two of his children were killed right before him because of his refusal to leave. And he was lonely, and he was broke, and he was hungry. And the interviewer said, would you do it all over again? And I I wrote down his response because it uh, it brought tears to my eyes. He said, now this is a man who's lost everything, right? I not only would do it all over again, I wish I had more to give for the sake of Christ. God has broken me and used me. But when I ponder all that he has done, I cry tears of joy and wish I had a thousand more lives to give in the same manner but I thank God that I have at least one. 
It's a man who understands joy. That's a man who's on his knees in prayer. And that's a man who has a posture of gratitude flowing from a love for Christ. May that spirit mark Franklin City Church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray.